Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Senek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, Uber and innovation. So, Richard, we have occasion a few times in the history of the show to talk about Uber, the popular car service app. And this company has of late been a real magnet for government scrutiny. California has tried to crack down on them by saying that they shouldn't be allowed to classify their drivers as independent contractors. In France, there have been efforts to more or less shut the company down. We saw protests that got violent recently from taxi drivers in Paris. And now we have the mayor of New York City, Bill de Blasio, supporting a cap on the number of Uber drivers in the city because he says they're, quote, flooding the streets. Um, okay, this is a way to make it easier for people to get rides, Richard. Why does it en- engender such intense reaction? Well, the reaction comes not from the customers, all of whom like it. It comes from the competitors, all of whom are very uneasy about the loss of potential business. And, you know, you can see it. I, just to start with an anecdote of why it is that everybody loves Uber. Um, Uber essentially has a variable pricing scheme, which means that when demand goes up, the price goes up so that the queues tend to clear. The taxi cabs are essentially fixed for a once and for all meter. They can't change in any way. And so if you're on the east side and it's five p.m. and you want to get a taxi cab, either you mug somebody who's sitting in one or you just simply (laughs) wait on the corner. Uber essentially will be able to handle that. So I can recall coming out of an event hosted by the University of Chicago at the New York Athletic Club and it was fiercely and half the people there had Uber and were calling it up and the other half were desperately trying to flag down a cab somewhere on the street. It's kind of the parable of New York City. And, you know, it turns out the cabs do okay. The actual number of cabs with franchise licenses is fewer than those that have been authorized. There was a recent expansion of green cabs into rural neighborhoods. Uh, or to uh, not rural neighborhoods, but to outlying neighborhoods, an area in which Uber could quite naturally serve. And, and these people paid very good money for the things that they've gotten. They were promised some kind of an exclusive. And they mortgaged their medallions in order to raise the money. So the great challenge has been how do you make sure that people who are given an exclusive under contract don't get wiped out while giving consumers the better services that they deserve? And the mayor, in his speeches, you know, he's fatuous. He doesn't talk about the central problem. He just raises fake arguments about crowding on public streets and a lot of other stuff, all of which is the standard repertoire of protectionists who simply don't want to understand the nature of the problem that they have to face. Richard, one of the other criticisms that has been made of Uber, it was at the heart of the California ruling. It's also been taken up, albeit sort of half-heartedly, by Hillary Clinton recently. Is really not just a criticism of the company itself but a broader critique of what's come to be called the, the gig economy. That is people freelancing, working several different jobs as independent contractors and you get people on the left suggesting that this is sort of a violation of the social contract, that people are increasingly on their own, that they may be working but that they're left without the benefits and protections of traditional employment and that it's making American workers 
less secure. What, what do you make of that anxiety? Well, I think what's made American workers less secure is the way in which we constantly load additional restrictions onto the standard labor contracts so they become unsupportable in the marketplace. Um, just this morning, there was a story, I think it was in the Wall Street Journal, which noted the huge steps that employers are now taking to avoid overtime for our new class of workers who have been legislated as people entitled to this under the Fair Labor Standards Act. And what's going to happen is people who used to get some degree of overtime in their jobs will now lose it uh, because they can't, the companies can't afford to pay it. Over and over again, what you do is you see employers are told that employees get this, that, and the other protection in addition to wages. Then you push up the minimum wage and the deal just simply disappears between high compliance costs and, and low benefits. And so what people then do is they shift to independent contractors. That is often called the fraud because you're working long enough for the same guy. You can't be an independent contractor. And so they say, okay, I can't do that. And then all of a sudden you're back in the gig economy one way or another because at that point it's clear what you are. And at least it wasn't until the Uber case came along. But if you do all sorts of odd jobs for different kinds of people, it's very difficult to describe you as an employee of any one of them. You're more like the plumber who comes in and fixes the house. So if they want to restore the traditional uh, workday, what they have to do is to lay off the employment relationships instead of treating it as a pinata, which you constantly beat for something else. The other side of the problem is there are many people who like the gig economy. Uh, they go to school full-time and they want to get jobs part-time in order to be able to help to pay the rent. Uh, so for some people, it's not a necessity because they're shut out of the full-time market. It's an option because they don't want to be in the full-time economy. If you look at the Uber drivers, there's some fraction of them who drive 40, 50 hours a week, but there's probably a larger fraction of drivers who do under 15 hours a week. And you know what the company does, in effect, is to allow people to top off their other kinds of jobs and add an immense amount of flexibility to the labor market. But you will never get anybody on the left to ask the question as to whether or not a contract can survive if, in fact, the mandated benefits and the compliance costs are so great uh, that employers are going to run for cover and move in the opposite direction, which is what has happened. So uh, this Clinton-type critique, again, shows her just mad misunderstanding about the way labor markets work. What she thinks she can do is to boost employment by knocking out collateral consequences, where in fact, unless you change the fundamental employment relationship, you're going to see what we've seen for a long time. Slow growth in employment and rather stagnant wages hitting hardest on the lower portions of the economic, people on the lowest rungs of the economic ladder. So Richard, should people on the right feel confident that Progressivism contains within it sort of the seeds of its own destruction. Here's what I mean. Places like New York, essentially, they essentially set up a cartel for the taxi system. A company like Uber comes in. They don't try to go through the legal or policy process and break that cartel up. They just go around it and create an alternative model. And what you've described in a somewhat similar fashion, you get all these ancillary regulations built into traditional employment relationships – which you raise the cost of hiring someone and, and thus reduce the pool of jobs and you have people simply say, forget it. I'll just go the independent contractor route. Should this be one of the major strategies on the right at this point that wherever and whenever you can, you just opt out? 
Well, what the people on the right should do is they tell people individually if it's rational for you to opt out, by all means opt out. But the key feature is you'd like to get the shift between full-time employment and part-time relationships correct. And you can't do that if you heavily tax the one and ignore the other. The Uber situation is quite distinctive uh, because there's no question that the medallion issue does require somebody to address it. And I think the best way to do this is to probably put a small tax on all Uber vehicles and use those monies not for the benefit of the city, but for the benefit of those people who own medallions, which have been depreciated. Now, the depreciation here doesn't come simply from competition, which is why it's hard. It comes from the fact that these people paid lots of monies for a promise from the city to have an exclusive, and that exclusive has been violated. So the taxi cab drivers go to sue the city and say, you know, the dilution of our particular medallions by virtue of letting new entrants on the road in violation of our contract is a taking. Analytically, that's exactly correct. Uh, it's as though you own 10% of the shares of a company and the government doesn't take your shares but what it does is it doubles the number of shares out reducing your effective interest to 5%. Somebody says, well, you had 10 shares and you still have 10 shares, no taking. But what you really did is you had 10% of the company and now you have 5% of the company and that dilution is in fact the taking but not in New York City because the explicit decisions go the other way around. Uh, so what happens is the sensible way in which to have done this is to allow the new drivers to come in there and then to allow the drivers who have been disappointed to sue the city for dilution and then let the city tax the new guys to come in at least something in order to pay back the other situation. But the original sin in this was a long time ago when they decided to sell these medallions back in 1937 under Firo LaGuardia. And the city then treated it as a revenue source for a quid pro quo. Now, in effect, if you get rid of the quid pro quo, the city has to surrender its revenue source, and they're very reluctant to do that. Uh, so de Blasio, I think, is doing this in part because he fears that if he doesn't knock out the Uber alternative, the city is going to find itself exposed to perfectly valid claims by the other drivers. But you're never going to solve a hard problem like this in a second-best world unless you face it candidly. And to start talking about overcrowded roads on the one hand, or worker exploitation on the other hand, or safety risks, or whatever it is that he conjures up, is simply to divert people from the issues that really matter in this case. When you look at the reaction from de Blasio or from Hillary or even the traction that we're seeing right now in the presidential race for somebody like Bernie Sanders, is the market-friendly or at least not actively market-averse wing of the Democratic Party now dead? It's sort of remarkable to contrast the fairly growth-oriented Democrats of the Clinton era in the 90s with a party that now seems much more explicitly progressive in its thinking. I think the great tragedy of American life is the end of the right-wing Democrat. Um, and those were people who essentially had a social conscience, were liberal on various kinds of issues like you know, gay rights and abortion, uh, but on economic stuff generally tended to be pro-market in their basic orientation, realizing that you can't redistribute the wealth that you don't have, and understanding that if you have a larger pie and proving the lot of just about everybody, it makes all the other hard social choices a little bit easier than they would otherwise have been. But the new Democrats don't see any use for a market. What they're buying to do radically is to displace it. And then you get speeches like Mrs. Clinton when she starts to talk about all this stuff saying, well, we want growth, but we want equity. 
equity. And every piece of equity she has is an anti-growth measure. Stronger unions, higher minimum wages are on the top of that particular list. These are not efforts to create growth. These are efforts to make sure that the union clientele, which has heavily supported the Democrats, will continue to do so. So I think, in effect, the the Democratic Party has moved uh, publicly quite far to the left. And Bill Clinton himself is if he believes what he does now, is not the guy he was when he was president of the United States some 20 years ago. And I think that that change is absolutely devastating. Uh, The Republicans, I think, are a little bit more pro-market, but then they've got clowns around there like Donald Trump and so forth who just say ugly and destructive things about innocent people. And so the Republicans may move to the right on some issues, uh, but I think, in effect, that the Democratic move has actually been more pronounced in terms of changes of policy and much more dangerous. I don't think there is a single Democratic candidate running for president who is to the right of Hillary Clinton. I think she is the right wing of the Democratic Party as things now stand. Um, Bernie Sanders is on the left and he does very well in crowds because you know people actually believe him. Sincerity is very high in his case. Nobody believes Hillary about anything as she tools from one fancy speech to another in a private debt. Jets, this is not a woman of the people and I think all the people well understand that. There's a theory out there that's embraced by a lot of libertarians and a lot of conservatives that young people, millennials I guess, because they're immersed in an economy where consumer products are increasingly customized and tailored to them, whether it's a company like Uber or one like Airbnb, that because they're growing up acculturated to that level of choice and that level of consumer freedom, that they will inevitably develop a political outlook that embraces competition, that embraces the free market. Is that a persuasive argument to you? Well, there's always such an enormous disconnect between what people actually do on the one hand and what they seem to publicly believe on the other that I'm never quite sure. Um, The way in which it has sometimes been put, there's a kind of a law of conquest, which is that the more you know about a particular area, the more pro-market you become with respect to its operation. Uh, But if people are sort of experts on Airbnb and on Uber, it doesn't mean that they understand anything about labor markets or exchange markets or stock markets or banks. And so it's quite possible to have these market discontinuities in the way in which people think about stuff uh, so that in terms of their global images, they remain left, whereas in terms of their own professional careers, um, they turn somewhat to the right, that is in terms of the market, anti-market axis. And if you're trying to figure out the way the votes go, the public side may be more important than the private side. Uh, So you could start to see a lot of, uh, as it were, Free marketeers in one industry is being sort of Bernie Sanders um, liberals on the other. I mean the man obviously knows how to connect with people because what he does is he expresses the frustrations they have at their own poor situation. What the man is terrible about is understanding anything about means ends creations and connections and whatever he wants to do is just going to make the matters worse than they are. Um, But it's easy to promise free goods if you believe that infinite taxes can be lodged on those people for whose vote you're not even trying to continue. And that's the kind of Sanders position that you start to see. So the de Blasio is very much in that kind of tradition. Uh, but the big difference between him is he's a lousy politician and such an open hypocrite um, that I think he will, in fact, lose support in New York City. I mean, the stories that come up about him now are how he desperately wants to go overseas and to be a big shot in the world labor movement or how he wants to prettify his office and do other things. He seems to want to do everything but be mayor of New York City in, in, in the sort of hard roll up your sleeves working sense and I think that has managed to catch people. He may well turn out to be a one-term mayor, which is one term too many.
<laughs> so final question, Richard. There is a, a cycle that seems to manifest itself over and over again in recent years where you get an innovative company coming into the market, a company like an Uber, and they disrupt some incumbents and then they end up starting to get harassed by the incumbents, usually in sort of collusion with government. And then it seems like the end game, if you play it out long enough, always ends up being the startup company getting their own lobbyists and playing the same game. And you have this one-way ratchet where business and government gets more and more intermingled. Is there is there a way to arrest that, let alone to start unwinding it? Well, there's no way to arrest it within the framework of the standard political process. And the temptation that you're worried about here is that Uber will find a way in which it can expand its memberships but try to impose various kinds of restrictions that will keep smaller competitors from coming in and gobbling up market share. This happens all the time. Remember, there was a time when when Microsoft was a developing company and it resisted the antitrust laws. And now it turns out that when Google and other companies start to pass it, it starts bringing antitrust claims on its own and going to Washington seeking relief. Not a very pretty sight. Let's hope it doesn't continue, and it certainly hasn't been endemic in everything that they have done. But my favorite example about this is Southwest Airlines. When they came into Love Field back I know, 30 or so years ago, uh, they were immediately hit by the right amendment, which said that they could not fly out of their Love Field in Texas operations except to neighboring states. If they wanted to go further, they had to use small planes. And, and the courts upheld this ridiculous right amendment. And then it became very clear 25 years later that this was not going to last. So what they did is they cut a deal with American Airlines in the Dallas-Fort Worth airport to keep out all new competitors and to divide the market as between themselves. Mm-hmm. I wrote a piece about this in Regulation Magazine called The Wrong Stuff some years ago, and it absolutely describes what's going on. And what's so terrifying about this is that the leaders behind this deal are people like Kay Bailey Hutchinson, i.e. Republicans who should know better, but when it comes to local issues, do not. And she sounded just like Bill de Blasio. Um, there was a case of Virgin Airlines. I can't remember the name of the company where I represented briefly, but the way in which they decided to snub its competition was to blow up its two gates. And what Miss Hutchinson said is, well, what gates existed? Love Field is a local matter. It has nothing to do with interstate commerce. And, you know, you start hearing preposterous claims in support of indefensible positions. And, you know, Uber, if its back is to the wall, will try to compete. But if it turns out it's going to be destroyed unless it cooperates with the incumbent powers, it will start to shift over. Now, whom do I blame on this in part? I blame the nine old men and women on the Supreme Court who essentially believes that legislatures behave virtuously when they regulate economic affairs. And the right amendment was originally upheld on creating this absurdity with respect to Love Field and the new agreement will not be challenged and will be upheld. It actually has been upheld. So if you get a court which says that the creation of monopolies by local government is just part of the grand political scheme, you will see lots of creation of local monopolies. The danger of faction and special interests is great. And at this particular point, there is no branch of government which is dedicated towards its elimination, which is why people like Bill de Blasio can sound like I'm sort of intellectual fools, I guess, is the only word to describe him when they start this sort of mindless anti-Uber campaign. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting definingideas at hoover.org, and you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. 
For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.